welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and we're thrilled to welcome you to this somewhat different program um, than what we usually do. I'm pleased that we could partner with the National Committee on American Foreign Policy, and we have with us uh, its president, Ambassador Susan Elliott. So let me turn it over to Susan for some words of welcome. Well, thank you, Steve, and thanks to all of you um, who are participating today. You know, I think we were just talking about, you know, how important this report is, um, progress made and lessons learned from the U.S.-China strategic and economic dialogue. Um, and on behalf of, we call ourselves the other national committee, I want to offer my thanks and appreciation to you, Steve, and to your strong team um, at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I think um, you have co-organized the launch of today's report. We've worked really closely together on this, and I think for all of today's participants, you're going to be really pleased at, at hearing the great work that the research team has done. I'd also like to recognize and thank the both the American Friends Service Committee and the Ford Foundation, whose generous support and partnerships have made this research um, possible. Uh, so thank you to both of those organizations. And finally, I'd just like to thank the members of the research team. Steve will introduce everyone, but Tiffany Barron, Rory Daniels, who works with us at the National Committee, uh, Patrick Hume, um, Daniel Jasper, uh, Craig Kefora, and Casey Minora. Uh, today, Tiffany, Rory, Daniel, and Susan Thornton, who also works with us at the National Committee, will be part of the panel discussion. But we also want to recognize that Craig, Casey, and Patrick played an extremely important role in this research project. So thanks to all of you for taking the time and energy to invest in this project and for being with us today to discuss your findings and experiences. So I'll turn the program back over to you, Steve, and thanks. Thank you, Ambassador Elliott. Um, you know, sometimes I wait and wait for something to arrive and, and wait for it to come. And I keep saying, wait, this exists. I know this is right. And in this case, you know, engagement revisited. This report is one I've waited for for a long time. In fact, since 2017, since kind of the S of the Security and Economic Dialogue, Strategic and Economic Dialogue, was ended by the Trump administration, I've kind of waited for some great scholars to analyze what those dialogues did for the American people. And then this report appeared, and I said, here it is. Hallelujah, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. So I want to thank the National Committee, the other National Committee, and Tiffany, Rory, Dan, Susan, and the whole team for writing what is a great report and what everyone needs to read. Everybody needs to read this because it, it's the data. So much of what we talk about in U.S.-China relations is kind of vague generalities, but this is the data, and that's what we're going to hear about today. I think you can download the report now. Today is its official launch, and we're pleased to be doing it together. Um, and you can now download it and read it. But what we're going to do in this hour and 15 minutes is give you a flavor 
for what is in the report and discuss some of its implications. Uh, we've got three of the, of the authors. I will give very brief introductions. Um, you know, Tiffany Barron, who is a PhD candidate in the Princeton University Department of Politics, conducting research on the intersection of international relations and comparative politics. She's in her fourth year in the PhD program there. Rory Daniels, who's the co-lead of the Engagement Revisited Project, this project, and is the deputy project director of the Forum on Asia-Pacific Security at the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. And Dan Jasper, the other co-lead of the Engagement Revisited Project, and he is the Asia Public Education and Advocacy Coordinator for the American Friends Service Committee, where he's advocated for diplomacy, humanitarian cooperation, and peace building with North Korea and China since 2015. And of course, Susan Thornton, who in addition to being the project director of the Forum on Asia Pacific Security at the National Committee on American Foreign Policy and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School, um, is a director of the National Committee on US-China Relations and um, as I think most of the people on this call knows, know, uh, was had an absolutely sterling 28-year career in the United States Department of State, where she finished as um, uh, the Acting Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, and both in and out of government has been a voice for rational China policy. So let me turn it over Dan first, we'll do Dan, Rory, Tiffany, kind of in that order to kind of give an overview and some of the findings, then we'll start questions. I know we've got a lot of audience questions already. Uh, we, will, we will try to get to as many of those as possible, but let me say in advance, we are not gonna be able to get to all of them. So Dan, thanks for this great work, it really, as, as we were talking before, it uplifted my spirits because it's something that in the back of my mind I knew was right and then you kind of gave us the data to show that these dialogues created real benefits for the American people. Yeah, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Steve. I really appreciate it. And now it's my turn, I think, to extend a few thank yous. Um, I wanna thank the National Committee on US-China Relations for hosting this launch. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and I also wanna thank the National Committee on American Foreign Policy and the entire research team for all their contributions. I think like all good research, this was sort of equal parts fascinating and equal parts grueling, uh, but they bore it all well. And so, so much appreciation for everyone involved. Um, I also want to thank the Carter Center. Um, much of this report was seated in work I did with them for a report called Finding Firmer Ground. Uh, so we appreciate them laying the groundwork for this. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty of the report, I wanted to give the sort of the why and the how of this project. Um, starting with the why, um, I think we're all familiar with the broad criticisms that engagement and dialogue didn't work with China. Uh, however, I had a lot of trouble understanding this and I wondered, I think the same as Steve, if there was some hard data to show the impacts of engagement and dialogue with China. Uh, I didn't find much, and so I set out with the Carter Center to first see how we can evaluate these dialogues. Uh, and the first step was measuring them against their stated objectives and outputs, uh, rather than some sort of general ideal. And, and we developed a sort of rough outline for how to evaluate these mechanisms. <clears throat> and I brought this uh, rough outline to the National Committee on American Foreign Policy and Rory Daniels, 
Uh, and we came together on this point and thought, why don't we put this evaluation methods into practice? Uh, so we wanted to see if we could get a quantitative and or qualitative assessment of how well they performed uh, as measured against their own stated goals, not some foreign policy ideal. Um, just a quick word on the how. Um, we zoomed in on the strategic and economic dialogue under Obama for a few reasons. Um, number one, there was ample data. There's nearly 1,000 commitments uh, made all relatively laid out sort of neatly on joint statements um, which is perfect for researchers. Um, there was a real effort, I think, to lay these commitments in a format that could be assessed over time. And so I want to give a lot of credit to the officials that were involved in that and, um, and, and really took efforts to sort of meticulously document these things. Uh, along with the ample data, it was a huge effort. The SNED touched on probably a good chunk of the vast majority of issues between the US and China. Uh, and so we could see where there were areas that dialogue um, so, well, I suppose we had the question in the back of our mind, you know, where there are areas where dialogue was more effective than others. Um, maybe it was only a tool that worked for certain discussions. Uh, and we wanted to explore that a little bit further and the SNED was a perfect grounds to do that. Another point was that ample time had passed and we could follow the trajectory of these commitments even after the US and China stopped talking. So did these, com these commitments evaporate after the dialogue stopped or were there continued developments on these issues? And this period of disengagement that followed the SNED also provides, I think, an important counterfactual in some ways. You know, how are the US and China managing the relationship in the absence of dialogue? That abrupt stop to dialogue makes it more measurable in a sense because it acts like a typical policy intervention uh, that can be engaged and disengaged at will. Um, so just a quick couple notes on our data set and project design, and I'm happy to get more into this in the Q&A because I think it could be a lengthier discussion. Um, but we noted early on that the language within these commitments are meant to be somewhat below the level of international agreement, but above aspirational. So in other words, we had to sort through what exactly was a commitment, what was measurable as a commitment and what was verifiable. You know, so how does one measure something like strengthening cooperation or encouraging participation of the private sector, for example? Well, it's obviously a little subjective, uh, but we did our best to glean from interviews and joint statements when things like that, um, and to see if there were, were areas that we could identify where subjects increased. Um, it's also an important point, I think, for officials, because if they want to show the efficacy of these instruments, uh, the vocabulary really does matter. Uh, and the other major point I'll mention here is the issue of verifiability. Uh, many commitments were sort of vague, complex, and some of them touched on classified processes in which we wouldn't be, have been able to assess. Uh, so we indicated when we could verify commitment and um, made a comment when uh, indicators weren't verifiable. Um, so this should give you sort of a, a little bit of lay of the land, uh, and we can probably dive now into some more of the specifics. And I think I can hand it off to Roy, who can talk about the key takeaways. Thanks, Dan. And thanks, Steve, and thanks to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations for having us. Um, so as Dan said, we went through this um, very complex data set of almost a thousand outcomes to look at all of the different commitments and follow up on their progress. And in addition to using open source research to do this kind of quantitative data where we're seeing, you know, if, for example, the U.S. committed to reducing its national debt, um, to what extent was that followed? 
um, what was the volume, what was the time frame in which that occurred. We also interviewed former officials who had been working um, particularly on negotiations in the process. So for the most part, we weren't interviewing principals or senior officials, but we were interviewing people who were doing the nitty gritty work of um, developing outcomes and coming to negotiations with Chinese counterparts to see if they thought the processes were effective and efficient um, and to see if there were any recommendations they had about areas of particular progress or um, areas in which the SNED process could have been improved. And from those two, two methods of evaluating the SNED, we came up with several key takeaways. Um, overall, we found that the SNED process was effective in creating space for diplomatic progress. And there were several structural elements of the SNED that made this possible. Um, the SNED was effective at bridging the gaps between the two systems, two very different types of bureaucracies. So the combination of this high level buy-in for these dialogues where the secretaries were going to get together once a year, ministers would get together once a year and endorse outcomes alongside the working level negotiations that were kind of continuously running throughout the year created a really effective feedback loop for making progress on key issues. Um, and it also bridged the gap between a relatively top-down Chinese system where the key decision makers are um, need to give permission from the top-down for working-level negotiations to proceed, and the bottom-up nature of the U.S. system where working-level officials were relatively free to negotiate outcomes toward a goal without getting express permission from their principals or secretaries. Um, so the SNED process, those the, that combination of high-level buy-in and working-level negotiations was very effective at making progress on issues and bridging the gap between the two systems. Um, the regular schedule of the SNED, the idea that the meetings were going to happen every single year, regardless of other events in US-China relations, created also action forcing and action allowing mechanisms. So once again, the, you know, the working level negotiations that were continuous throughout the year had their own process and logic of consolidating priorities, for example, in the U.S. system. What were our asks of China? What did we want from China this year? And that unsiloed some of the um, barriers between different agencies or departments um, towards this action forcing event, which was these this principal level meeting. On the Chinese side, the, the actions were allowed um, through this mechanism. So knowing that the principals were going to get together in the year created some momentum for working level officials to try to make progress on issues. Um, the, one of the biggest takeaways that we found is that the process itself, this kind of continuous action that was going on behind the scenes created relationships that were really important for achieving progress on critical US interests. So um, at the beginning of the SNED, officials we interviewed told us that at times the, US, the first step in achieving progress on an issue was actually just identifying who in the Chinese system would be responsible for taking action or making progress on that issue. Um, and in these, this, this building of relationships and this iterative process, 
there were also opportunities to, to talk to Chinese interlocutors about issues that occurred outside the scope of the SNED. So in some cases, these relationships were critical in resolving crises or managing um, areas of conflict that had nothing to do with the negotiated outcomes of the SNED, but would not have been possible without the relationships built through this process. Um, this process also complemented other aspects of diplomacy with China. It was never meant to be the sole mechanism by which to manage US-China relations, but it established itself within a rhythm of diplomacy that included high-level meetings. So there was a typical calendar of events where the SNED would meet in the spring and the summer, followed by a leadership level meeting in the fall, um, perhaps at an international forum or a bilateral summit in which, you know, outcomes from the SNED would be further consolidated, explained and endorsed by the leaders. Um, this process was also pretty effective at advancing US interests. So some of the criticisms of, um, of the SNED include that it was not you know, results oriented or it was not whole of government. But I think if you look at our data set, you'll find that it is very difficult to make that case looking at the outcomes. There were many outcomes in which, in which US interests were advanced in significant ways, whether we're talking about global financial stability or bilateral trade and investment, people to people exchange, energy and climate change priorities. Um, and also, you know, international priorities, uh, conservation, wildlife trafficking, illegal logging, and other issues. So um, I think the data set shows that it really was a whole of government and a results-oriented process, um, quite in contrast to some of the criticism of, of the SNED. But all of that is not to say that it was without some criticism, including criticism from, from working-level officials that we interviewed. Um, so, you know, two of the main criticisms were that the SNED kind of hoovered up or vacuumed up progress that was not essential to its own process. So, you know, there were ongoing mechanisms of U.S.-China diplomacy that had been going on for decades. And when the SNED was created, they fell under the umbrella of the SNED without a logic as to why that happened, um, creating this kind of sprawling mechanism or uh, issue sprawl where the SNED was covering more than it really needed to. And I think the, the other major criticism was that it was overly process oriented, um, that when issues could not, when, when the US and China could not come to progress on an issue, they tended to fall back on process. So you'll see, if you look at our data set, there are many outcomes that are statements of principle um, they don't necessarily create a commitment to do something different, but create a commitment to talk again about a specific issue. And although our team actually found that there was kind of a, there was a value in, in having those ongoing discussions, um, there's plenty of criticism that says that, you know, that in itself was not progress. And therefore, some of these dialogues would need to be revisited, sunsetted, or revised. And with that, I'll turn it over to Tiffany, but those are the key takeaways and conclusions that we came to that form the basis of the policy recommendations, um, which Tiffany will address. Thank you. And we'll, go, we'll go back after Tiffany speaks to some of the very specific uh, deliverables that resulted from the SNED. Go ahead, Tiffany, sorry. Thank you, Rory, and thank you, Steve, and just also echoing thanks to the National Committee on US-China Relations for hosting us. Um, so I will speak to the policy recommendations, which in brief, our conclusion um, after we finished our research was that 
we should return to some elements of the S and ED structure, but with modifications. Um, so we think that to build an effective US-China engagement strategy um, that requires helping to manage cooperation, competition, and confrontation between the world's two largest powers, we need some kind of consistent endorsable process um, to keep different issues in the relationship compartmentalized. Um, so we recognize that there will be areas of competition, there will be areas of confrontation between the US and China. Um, but in order to manage those areas while still moving forward in areas where we have common interests between the US and China, there needs to be some kind of um, process that sets a rhythm to the relationship. Um, and to still find a way for these major powers to cooperate on these issues. So one of our key recommendations there is that we need high level buy-in to the cooperative side of the agenda. As Rory mentioned earlier, these high level summits um, served as action forcing events during the SNED. Um, and it was clear from the interviews that people on both sides understood that negotiations had to end by each year's high level summits. So they forced action and, and they forced a conclusion to negotiations. Um, on the Chinese side in particular, the high level sign off also created space for lower level officials to make progress. Um, so this is something that's currently missing in the US-China relationship. Another key component is that both sides need to manage expectations and make sure that the logic of the process itself is clear. So the logic of the process, the goal is not to change each other's systems, um, but to manage areas of competition and build on common interests. Um, to that end, bilateral diplomacy should be used to identify the other side's interests and goals and leverage them to create value for your own sides. Um, part of managing expectations then is building more monitoring mechanisms into the process, um, being more clear about what counts as an outcome. So what is agreed to through the process and what is an output, what occurs over time. Um, we also suggest to differentiate the outcomes by type rather than lumping them all into a single comparative list by topic. So the SNED formerly would release a list of outcomes and it would be a single list and it would be divided by um, say climate change or um, by health, infectious disease, purely by topic. Um, but when we actually went through and looked at the outcomes, we found that you could categorize the outcomes as um, by type as things like statements of principle, agreement signed, ongoing progress, new projects, et cetera. Um, so being clear about what these specific outcomes are and then how they um, occur over time would be helpful for resurrecting a new SMED type process. Um, we also recommend that we, the two sides continue to break down silos among different agencies, actors, and beneficiaries of the process. Um, along with that, an interagency process to consolidate or an oversight mechanism to consolidate the, how the different agencies are relating to each other. Um, something that came out in interviews, um, in several interviews, is that the SNED didn't have a sunsetting mechanism for dialogues. So when a dialogue no longer fit the priorities or the interests of both sides, very often the dialogue would continue to meet. Um, we recommend that a new process would reduce the administrative and logistical burden by having some kind of sunsetting mechanism to recognize when a dialogue was no longer necessary. 
Um, to that end, we recommend that a new process would prioritize the issues that need an SNED style process in order to continue or to bear fruit. Great. Well, let's let's bring it now from kind of the process and the discussion at thirty thousand feet down to okay, we're having an argument. What are the specific deliverables? There's an enormous amount of government expense and effort and cabinet secretaries' time and all these things. Talk about specific deliverables uh, that we could say, all right, this is something the American people benefited from. Rory. Sure, I'll get that started. Um, I think that, you know, there were a lot of areas of functional cooperation in the SNED, um, particularly on outcomes that that I uh, personally address in energy and climate change, but also on space and um, trade facilitation. So I'll go through some of those areas of functional cooperation and then Dan and Tiffany can talk a little bit more about um, the treasury side of the equation and also some of the high level bilateral dialogues, which were less results oriented in their nature, but were not without value, I think, to the American people and to the US-China relationship as a whole. So functionally, um, especially in the areas of nuclear technology and clean energy, there were a lot of opportunities for joint research and trade. Um, so, you know, one area where the US and China that was consistent throughout the outcomes um, that we studied uh, in the US-China relationship were peaceful uses of nuclear technology. Um, so the US and China have a lot to gain by combining their research efforts on peaceful uses of nuclear technology. We have a lot to gain through nuclear cooperation in general, but obviously this is an area that is incredibly sensitive because most of the research um, could be considered dual use and a lot of the projects could be considered dual use. So there had to be a dialogue mechanism, um, which met every year to talk about peaceful uses of nuclear technology and to see where the opportunities arose for things like cancer research or um, facilitating, you know, U.S. corporation nuclear projects inside China. Um, that was one area of functional cooperation that was helped by the SNED. Um, there were also, you know, incredible efforts at joint research. So one of the most productive outcomes that I studied was the Clean Energy Research Center. And the Clean Energy Research Center was a government-to-government -government initiative, which included the cooperation of the private sector and funding from the private sector, but got together the U.S. and China's national laboratories, um, major think tanks and universities, to advance energy um, efficiency research and cooperation. And one, you know, one of the, the more surprising aspects, I think, of that particular project was that the Department of Energy, which was running the Clean Energy Research Center, recognized quite early on the potential risk to intellectual property rights um, of doing joint research between the US and China. And, and, and they built into the protocol for the Clean Energy Research Center an IP rights protection protocol that was cited in a 2015 GAO report is particularly effective at addressing the IP issues. Um, so many of the companies, I think a vast majority of the companies that the GAO surveyed said that the Department of Energy could have done no more to protect intellectual property rights. 
and they found an instance, at least one instance, where that IP protocol was used to resolve an IP dispute. Um, the Clean Energy Research Center produced, you know, I think an incredible number of patents um, for new technologies in building efficiency, um, battery efficiency, clean vehicles, et cetera. Um, there were also a lot of opportunities for, for trade facilitation. So in many cases on the topic of clean energy, the US technology, US technology and US companies had a comparative advantage to um, selling their products inside China. And the US Trade Development Agency under the SNED facilitated uh, a number of trade missions to China and reverse trade missions. And this banner of SNED cooperation created opportunities for US companies in China where um, you know, perhaps it was seen as like a as a as a government-led endorsement in some cases. Um, so that the U.S. Uh, companies could circumvent some of the red tape, regulatory issues, et cetera, that can pop up between um, joint ventures and in and, and selling their products to China. Um, I think there are also, you know, a lot of experience sharing and development of energy and environmental standards. If you follow the progress of the, the clean energy and environmental conservation projects throughout the SNED outcomes, it often starts with the US sharing its technical and experiential data on how to create standards for clean energy and climate um, conservation. And then you see over time, China developing its own standards. In some cases, um, maybe on vehicle emissions in particular in the period that we studied, and on water conservations, ones that were even more strict than the US standards. Um, and I think there was a fair amount of international cooperation in this, this functional areas as well. Two things that stand out. The first is that the US and China worked together to convert China's highly enriched uranium plants to low enriched uranium plants, non-weapons grade material at the beginning of the SNED. And then the two countries took that experience to Africa where they converted several plants from HEU, highly enriched uranium, to low enriched uranium, reducing the amount of highly enriched weapons grade uranium throughout the world. I think that's a significant international outcome. Second, a lot of those standards that were developed around climate change and conservation um, led to cooperation that was essential, according to our interviewees, in realizing the Paris Climate Accords. So it was the functional cooperation and trust and relationships that the US and China developed through this SNED progress that facilitated China's entry into the Paris Climate Accords. And because of China's entry into the Paris Climate Accords, that brought along um, a fair amount of South and Southeast Asian countries as well. Um, and then I think that I'd also like to, to highlight some areas of basic governance um, that were particularly important to protecting U.S. interests. So one, you know, one example is that the U.S. and China have, um, just like in nuclear technology, had a relatively uh, hands-off relationship when it comes to space exploration. So space is another area where, you know, there are some dual-use technologies. Um, NASA is, is prohibited from working with Chinese partners on, on space, on some areas of space cooperation, but the Department of State was not. And what they found was that NASA and, and other agencies needed help to find the right Chinese interlocutors to address the issue of satellite collisions. So when the SNED process started, what the US side had was a fax number they could um, reach out to if they suspected that there was a upcoming issue with the satellite collision. 
And oftentimes the, you know, the faxes would go unanswered. And through the relationships built through the SNED process, and particularly through the Department of State, um, the officials were able to convert from a fax machine notification into real-time email notifications. And that helped facilitate, you know, the avoidance of satellite collisions, which I think we can all agree is an essential issue for the two major countries and the two um, countries with the most satellites out in space um, to work together on. Um, another issue of you know, basic governance that came out in our report was radiation detection measures. So the US and China together set up um, a radiation detection training center um, in China in order to better screen um, at ports for radioactive material or for radiated materials. So um, I think those are areas where, you know, the, the SNED facilitated some functional cooperation and oftentimes between agencies that were not the Department of State and Department of Treasury, but DHS, DOE, and other places. Um, and that those, you know, those areas of functional cooperations did advance U.S. interests in a, in a significant way. And also, I think, um, really showed what two major powers can do together, um, maybe particularly on that HEU to LEU conversion and in the Paris Climate Accords, that is the mark of a mature and functional relationship. Um, and with that, I will I'll turn it over to my colleagues who can speak a little bit more about some of the other areas of, of particular success. Uh, Tiffany, you wanna go ahead? Sure. Um... So I can speak a bit more to the bilateral diplomacy aspect of the SNED. Um, and in particular on the state side, a lot of these outcomes in bilateral diplomacy reflected more high level strategic principles for both the US and China. So um, these are less functional than Rory's outcomes, but still valuable. And this is a key thing that ran through our interviews that these were still valuable, even though the outcomes were not always as tangible. And these outcomes centered on things like statements of principle or dialogues um, that were held or were to be held. Um, and the value is really centered on advancing mutual understanding between both sides, risk reduction, clarifying intention, identi and identifying interlocutors, um, reducing the risk of misinterpreting, and misinterpreting um, intentions. Um, something that also came out of these dialogues was that the SNED set the rhythm for the US-China relationship and kept dialogue going when times of crises arose or times of tension arose. Um, so one interviewee mentioned that the SNED served as a kind of reset or anchor after the 2014 indictment of PLA officers. Um, so while this, um, these less tangible outcomes were emphasized in the interviews. There were also some tangible gains that were included. Um, so in my research in particular, on the state side, I found that there were actually pretty tangible outcomes, especially among law enforcement, um, consular dialogue and supply chain security. Um, so on the law enforcement side, China became more willing to crack down on child exploitation crimes, um, as well as on narcotics control. So China began listing precursor chemicals as controlled substances due to the SNED. Um, on the consular dialogue side, consular dialogue helped produce reciprocal 10-year validity tourism and business visas and a five-year validity student visa program. 
Um, for supply chain security, Dialogue helped to facilitate trade while doing security checks, um, specifically through customs joint validations, as well as expanding the container security initiative, which is an initiative um, obviously post 9-11 to secure the supply chain internationally. Um, there are also some MOUs that came out of military to military dialogue, specifically the notification of major military activities MOU, as well as joint exercises that were conducted on both sides. Um, the SNED also helped to facilitate dialogue around UN peacekeeping. And China actually ended up becoming the biggest contributor of peacekeeping forces of the P5. Um, and SNED also helped to produce a number of subnational and people-to-people -people exchange programs. So these were more tangible gains that came out of bilateral dialogue. Um, I also just want to emphasize and touch on a bit of some of the gains of regional dialogues too. So the SNED featured a number of regional dialogues on the Middle East and Africa, as well as um, Asia. Um, and coming out of some of these dialogues, the US and China made specific commitments on the Sudan and South Sudan issues. Um, and the Chinese involvement in particular was viewed as constructive, for instance, by participating in conflict mediation between the two sides. Um, dialogue between the US and China also helped contribute to the Iran deal, as well as counterterrorism dialogue, increasing coordination between the US and China on regional terrorist threats. Um, the two sides also exchange information on Afghanistan, which also helped to produce two cooperation programs between the US and Afghanistan um, and China on training Afghan diplomats and healthcare workers in both the US and China. And finally, I think it's important to highlight US-China collaboration on Ebola. So um, China's first major foray into international infectious disease response was on the Ebola issue. Um, in which it sent both medical personnel and constructed response sites in Africa during this um, disease crisis. Um, and the US and China actually worked together on the ground and in international venues, including the UN, in part due to the SNED dialogue mechanism. And I think it's important to emphasize this because um, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic where many of the cooperative mechanisms um, are obviously gone prior to the pandemic. So we didn't see as much cooperation as you perhaps might have seen had these cooperative mechanisms still existed. Um, and with that, I'm going to toss it to Dan. Tiffany, as, as much might be the understatement of the, of the decade. <laughs> but you make a great point that, that the, the mechanisms that we use to cooperate on fighting Ebola had been wiped out in part because of the cancellation of the SNED. And therefore, when COVID came around, they, they didn't, they couldn't kind of form the basis for cooperating on fighting COVID. And it's only gotten worse since. Dan, sorry. No, actually, Steve, that's a great point. And I think uh, it's sort of a good foyer into some of the points I want to make um, on the Treasury side and, and highlight a few of the success stories we had over there. Um, I, I think one of the most potent examples of success that we had on the Treasury side was the cooperation after the 2008 financial crisis. Um, I think it's certainly possible to talk about the cooperation that took place during the crisis. And in fact, that's a really important aspect of it. But obviously, that was beyond the scope of the SNED and was during the Bush era. 
Um, so, you know, but a former, a couple of former officials noted that, um, you know, the crisis required consistent communication and that it would have been really difficult um, or really easy, I should say, for each side to misinterpret one another and how they were responding to the crisis. And so to your point, Steve, about how, um, how necessary this is to start before a crisis begins. And I think in my mind, um, I do worry that what happens if there is another financial crisis and, and, and there is no dialogue mechanism uh, to carry out that communication. Um, so one highlight uh, in, this, in, in the years after the crisis was cooperation on macroeconomic stability. <clears throat> uh, China committed to a number of things, including uh, to increase domestic consumption, uh, and it did so um, by six percentage points by the end of the SNED. Uh, the U.S., for its part, committed to increase national and private savings uh, and sought long-term fiscal sustainability through things like healthcare reform. Um, but just to give you a flavor of the other commitments that China made during this time, um, they, they included things like increasing household income, uh, promoting job creation, accelerating development of the service sector, um, speeding up reform of monopolies, um, increasing access to financing for small and medium-sized enterprises, and expanding things like rural pension programs. Uh, and, and in my analysis, uh, China fulfilled all of these commitments with the possible exception of job creation, as I think unemployment increased over the course of the SNED in China. Um, but one, just pulling one of those examples out, I think uh, it's a really good example of sort of the long-term trajectory of these commitments, um, was the commitment made to reform or speed up reforms of monopolies. Um, China committed in a number of um, SNED statements to sort of build off of its 2008 anti-monopoly law. And throughout the SNED, they made incremental progress. And I think what's really telling is that in 2019, uh, China created the Chinese State Administration for Market Regulations, um, which carried much more enforcement power than previous agencies. So this demonstrated that even after the SNED was finished, there was a sort of momentum to some of these commitments that carried forth uh, in, in, in the years that followed. Um, some other surprising progress that I'll just highlight very quickly um, included uh, things like data and regulation transparency. Uh, China committed and, and made several improvements to some practices on data transparency. Um, China committed to improving procedures for its state capital operational budget. And by the end of the SNED, reports were more detailed and lengthier, including a greater, sort of indicating a greater willingness to share information. Um, and in 2018, I think this is important to note that IMF reported China had partially met its commitments to improve government financial statistics. So there was room for improvement there, but they were making um, some improvements. So just a quick word to, and to expand on Rory's comments on international or intellectual property. Um, I think counter to popular perception, there was some surprising progress in IP protections. And I think this could be a very lengthy conversation, but just to make a couple points, um, the USTR noted significant improvements in 2015 stemming from their commitments made at the SNED. Uh, the USTR stated in its 301 report, which sort of looks at global IP protections, um, that China was, um, that there were better means of seeking injunctive relief in China and that the US and China increased law enforcement cooperation on cross-border infringements. So I think that's significant. Um, some participants also noted that China's interest on IP protection increased along with their domestic innovation. And I think that's a trend that you see in most economies. And so it may and will likely continue to increase in the future. Uh, and in 2016, you'll remember uh, that there was a lot of concern with China's excess steel capacity. 
Um, and in 2016, uh, the SNED joint statement centered a lot around China's uh, steel capacity. So I just want a quick word on that. Um, China did take steps on all its commitments to reduce um, steel production, um, though it may have fell short of what some U.S. stakeholders would have hoped for. Um, nonetheless, they did reduce capacity by about 120 metric tons. Um, so that's just a quick flavor of the Treasury outcomes. Um, and I think I can just sort of end here and, and get into the Q&A if that's okay. The, um, so you've touched on a lot of what's in the report. It makes a compelling case that there were real benefits to the global system and Americans. So let me turn to Susan Thornton and say, okay, you were in government when this collapsed. What happened? What, when you have this, again, this is open source stuff. This is not unknown. Uh, what happened? Well, thanks, Steve. And again, thanks to the National Committee on US-China Relations for doing this. Um, I think, I mean, collapse is um, maybe not quite the right word. I mean, I think what happened was we had the strategic and economic dialogue that was set up by the Obama administration. And then we had, of course, a change of administration in the US. Most administrations coming in like to tinker at the margins with you know, how they set up um, relationships, processes, other things, they like to change the names, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, starting out under the Trump administration, there was a lot of effort that went into thinking about how we would structure dialogues with uh, the Chinese. And if you'll remember, um, you know, Secretary Rex Tillerson talked about having these four high level dialogues you know, one on um, security issues, one on economic issues, one on people to people exchange, um, et cetera, and then military dialogues. And I think, um, you know, that was the original intent uh, over the course of the first, I would say, sort of year of the Trump administration to set up these dialogues. And they did actually meet, I think, one round, but there was a real aversion to, I mean, a lot of things in the Trump administration, right? And one of them was um, basically to a lot of bureaucratic government involvement in any issue, um, never mind, you know, the, the issues re relating to China. So I think the preference was to have a sort of a top-down uh, dialogue, um, you know, together and sort of mir more mirroring the Chinese system, the top-down uh, dialogue. I mean, of course, the only dialogue that ended up actually progressing and producing anything was the um, economic dialogue that included Robert Lighthizer and Leo Hu, and the other dialogues fell apart for various and sundry reasons, but um, certainly not the least of which was the revolving door in the personnel system in the Trump administration. Um, so I think that you know, is a more or less um, explanation of kind of how things proceeded there. But we did see the high level economic dialogue, of course, continue and produce um, a trade agreement that was signed exactly, you know, a week before the COVID pandemic basically broke out and Wuhan city was shut down. And that I think event changed uh, the course of US Chinese relations um, in the la over the last couple of years. The, that 
leads directly into a question which any of you could answer, which kind of we made reference to. But so, you know, the, the Lighthizer Liu He dialogue was really, even, I guess it started out trying to deal with structural issues, but quickly devolved into how do we best satisfy domestic constituencies in the United States with a trade deal. Um, so it wasn't a it wasn't a real strategic discussion of economic issues. But the question is, since it did ultimately result in the signing of an agreement, and given the enormous effort that goes into an SNED, wouldn't these things, don't these things occur anyhow? If left, you know, the State Department can run its own strategic dialogue, Treasury can run, you know, discussions, USTR can run discussions, Commerce can run discussions. Um, why is it worth it? How do you justify it? I mean, I could take an initial stab at this, and I'd love to hear what some of the people who did the research um, in the trenches thought about this issue. But, uh, you know, the, I think the US has a very bottom-up system, as somebody mentioned earlier on. We have a lot of interest groups. Almost anything in the universe is going to be at issue in the US-China relationship. So you have more interest groups and more issues coming up in the relationship maybe than you do between any other two countries out there. And so I think um, you know, the US does have a problem with prioritization and it is important to have a mechanism to try to have some coordination in the US government. And I think the SNED was very important for that. Now, it does create some tension because of course agencies don't, don't like to bend to the priorities of either, either higher ups or of other agencies. And it's really hard to do that coordination in the US government. But if you don't do it, um, then it's much easier for a top-down system like the Chinese system to, to play different channels off one another. And I think it's very important to try to have good coordination, not to limit the number of issues we address, um, not to trade issues off against each other. And I think there might be some comments from the group on that particular criticism, but to make sure that we do have some prioritization and some coordination when we're approaching you know, a negotiating team that's as formidable as the Chinese negotiating team is, and they're quite skilled. So we have to be as good as they are. Others want to comment on that? Better. We have to be better than they are. Yeah, I think that, you know, just to complement what Susan has said um, quite eloquently, that um, th there, there is a sense, I think, and the criticism of the process that the SNED was, you know, it was like a bicycle. It kept running of its own accord, even though the logic of the process was flawed. But I think it's more accurate to look at it as a ballast in the relationship. And, you know, one data point that we can, we can glean from the study of the outcomes is that as general dissatisfaction with Chinese political system in the U.S. grew over the time of the SNED. So as China's political system, you know, became more repressive domestically, as China's power grew and it challenged U.S. interests more formidably in the international system or in regional fora, 
the areas of cooperation in the SNED and other places also grew. So I think that this process was really effective at compartmentalizing our different issues. And it's saying like, there, there are places where the US and China are never going to agree and, and we need to manage those issues and we need to do that maturely and directly and frankly. But also there are all these areas of common ground and we're not trading off one issue for another. We can simultaneously have cooperation and competition and at times, you know, friction or areas to manage in the relationship. And all of those things can be can be trending um, at the exact same time. So I think the process itself was really effective at compartmentalizing issues. And that's one argument for, for bringing a process back beyond just the prioritization. When you have this, this action forcing mechanism, when you have this high level buy-in, um, you do, you know, you do create momentum for keeping the process going, even when other aspects of current relations or current events um, could potentially get in the way. So another argument for process is that it does effectively compartmentalize issues. And that has been a goal, a stated goal of U.S.-China relations over the last nine months. Just to add to what's been said, um, I think the U.S. and China systems are very different as came out in interviews. And a lot of issues cross cut different agencies on both sides. So by having an SNED like structure, you're reducing, you're not only reducing the administrative burden, but it also helps to identify who the correct people are to talk to, build relationships over time so that you can continue to talk to the right people. Um, and I think also, especially for the Chinese system, um, the role of high level officials is very important. So once they indicated support of progress on a particular issue, this empowered low level officials to make progress and enter agreements, which might not happen without the high level sign off. One of the, Tiffany, you mentioned the MOUs that are, were signed in the military area. Uh, what DOD would tell you today is they've never been properly implemented that it was great that they got signed, but they just sit there. The Chinese don't notify us of these, of these things. You know, they've just chosen to ignore it. So should we have these kinds of dialogues if when agreements are reached, they're ignored? So I would say that this gets into a bit of what our, of one of our policy recommendations, which is to clarify the outcomes, what's agreed to in a specific dialogue versus the outputs over time. And there are definitely certain dialogues where there were outcomes that were agreed to that were not fully implemented. But then there are other outcomes that were um, implemented over time. And I think it's worth tracking um, where the failures to implement are and what the, fail, um, what the successes were, um, even in terms of helping to prioritize what issues are worth continuing to dialogue in the future. Yeah, one of the benefits, of course, of the SNED is when we did include the military, it did create a pathway for our militaries to have meetings uh, at a very senior level. If you look at today, those meetings are not occurring at all. So we're not having a dialogue with the Chinese military. Our military is not having a dialogue with the Chinese military. So if we had an SNED, it might be at least it would be a date certain by which they needed to meet. If you had these at fixed dates every year, it would be um, it would be a way to to keep that 
conversation um, going. I would just say, Steve, you know, one of the military agreements that was reached uh, in the context of the SMED was the agreement on uh, the rules of behavior, which is a very, um, uh, I think, has been implemented and is probably one of the major uh, reasons why we haven't had a, a, you know, kind of very escalatory military incident in the close, close in waters around uh, you know, East Asia, Southeast Asia, where we have so many military uh, assets moving around in close proximity. So that's one, and I think that, you know, the notification of major military exercises may not have been implemented. It was reached late at the very end of the process and relations kind of deteriorated quickly following. But, but that rules of behavior memorandum, I think has held up fairly well, even, even after the SNED finished. So. Mm -hmm. These, I mean, there are a lot of different things to look at, but um, I think it, it, that was a significant one. The Biden administration has talked about values being the center of our foreign policy now. Um, at one point in time, the SNED had both a human rights dialogue and a legal experts dialogue, um, which seemed to me a great idea. Uh, some complained that it gave legitimacy to the Chinese, that they said, you see, we have these human rights dialogues. I actually think it's the precise opposite, that when you sit and talk about human rights with the Chinese government and talk about it in terms of international uh, conventions, they take notes, and those notes circulate throughout the Chinese government. Ministry of Public Affairs, Ministry of Public Security, um, you know, Ministry of State Security, and those who are pro kind of rule of law in those areas, they see what the Americans it actually gives them hope that one day China will move in that kind of think about dialogue in. The SNED, because we have I mean, we think about it. They actually do through dialogue with the Human Rights Development Foundation on um, human rights rule of law. So I think about those issues also. I think, Steve, your microphone was breaking up a little bit, but I think we got the question. And there was someone that did actually do the research on the human rights dialogue. I don't know if any of the three of you can speak to what they found. So I did a little bit of the research on the human rights dialogue. Um, and I would say that the point I would make from um, based on my interviews is that one, the main point of the SNED was not actually to um, achieve system change. It was more about influencing how China engages with the international community. Um, but two, the importance of the, the human rights dialogue was um, as an educational process so that both sides could learn more about how each other's systems worked and how to better engage with each other's systems. Um, in addition to, again, this theme that comes up of identifying the correct interlocutors. Um, I also found from at least one interview that another benefit of the human rights dialogue was the opportunity to, to pass along for the US side to pass along to the China side um, certain human rights cases of concern 
um, issues that the U.S. side that they would like to, um, they would like the China side to deal with. Um, and we personally did not find any evidence of horse trading on these issues. So, for instance, we didn't it, we didn't see um, where the U.S. was giving China space on a human rights record just to secure cooperation on climate change, for instance. Um, I have heard this critique that by having the dialogue that we're that the U.S. is legitimizing um, the China narrative on human rights. I just don't see any evidence of that. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what actually happened through dialogue. One of the one of the things which is not in the report, but I believe is is a is a result of the SNAED, is the result is the release of Chung Guangchang, that he was released because. You know, the Chinese and Secretary Clinton needed to resolve this issues before the SNED started. So because we had these high level meetings, there was a need to kind of make sure this kind of issue didn't devolve in kind of a fang li jur, you know, the physicist who was held in the U.S. Embassy for how long? It was 13 months, 14, I mean, a long time. It could have devolved into that. Instead, he was released and allowed to come to NYU to study. That is, it's not an actual result of the SNED, but it actually happened because of the SNED. And when you have regular senior meetings, and it's true in business and it's true in diplomacy, you're forced to do things prior to those meetings that you likely would not have done otherwise. Um, and yeah, I, I think know. that gets to two issues, right? It's the it's the action forcing nature of having this regular process and scheduled meetings. And it's also the relationships that get built in the process. If you're not, I mean, if you have a pandemic and you haven't ever met your uh, opposite number in person, you're not going to have the same relationship as you do if you're meeting with them constantly through these kind of processes to try to move issues forward people might get frustrated over like those frequent meetings and how long it takes. But I mean, honestly, that is the nature of diplomacy. You have to work on issues that are very naughty sometimes, and it takes a long time. And it, there's a lot of education that goes on during these negotiations about what the constraints are that both sides face and what is the realistic ground on which we can sort of land and um, come up with an outcome. And I think that is the heart of diplomacy and the process kind of um, with China is, you know, it takes a lot of investment. So, I mean, we shouldn't be naive about that. We can only just, you know, go over and have one meeting with China and get an, an outcome. That's not going to be the way it works. And frankly, it's not the way it works with most countries. Yeah. The um, one final question to Susan, and I want to take all these great questions I'm getting from the audience. Um, what should we expect the Biden administration to do in this in this area? As you know, it's, it's obviously part of kind of the U.S.-China relationship generally. But can we expect um, the Biden administration to do more? Obviously, President Biden and President Xi had a conversation on Thursday night uh, that was some, you know, portrayed as a strategic discussion. Um, should we expect more in this regard? Should we expect? recreation of some dialogues? I mean, yes, I think absolutely we should expect recreation of some dialogues because it's going to be absolutely necessary, I think, going forward. We already have 
the uh, creation of a dialogue basically between special envoys for climate change. And John Kerry was, of course, in China last week and met with his counterpart, Xie Zhenhua and Tianjin. And they, are, they have been keeping a very, um, you know, kind of frequent communication channel going. And I assume that they will continue to do that um, up until the COP26 in December and beyond. But um, I think in parallel to that, we will see the gradual establishment of regular channels on other issues because it's gonna end up being absolutely necessary that we do so. I know that um, in the phone call you know, the, that uh, President Biden had with President Xi, he alluded to this idea of you know, guard, setting guardrails so that our competition, our stiff competition doesn't get out of hand. And, um, I think that speaks to the issue of having more frequent interactions between our militaries and discussions about arms control and limiting dangers in new technologies and new weapon systems. Um, I think that will probably be something that, that gets going eventually, I hope so. Um, and I, I think there will be dialogues in other areas, consular issues, you know, with the pandemic, there are so many issues with travel and exchanges there will have to be some of these dialogues will be, I think, certainly reestablished based on the interests that the U.S. has with China, which are sweeping and profound. Um, and I don't think, you know, that anyone can really imagine that these things are going to get done just on their own without the two sides talking to one another. So certainly we will see some kind of um, reestablishment. I think it will be slow and organic because we have to face the fact that you know, the political situation around the US-China relationship has definitely changed, um, that the overall sort of uh, deterioration of the relationship is gonna make it difficult. And all of the things that we do with China are now subject to, um, depending on your view, you know, overdue or unreasonable scrutiny. So I think we will have to see how things go forward, but certainly the dialogues are going to be necessary and they will, they will have to be set up, I think. Does this study of the SNED lead you to conclude that the United States should have what I would call a China czar, someone who could break through the silos at commerce, treasury, justice, defense, state, homeland security, and kind of, or do we have existing positions that can deal with it? Yeah, I don't, I'm not a fan of a China czar um, because I think frankly that the president of the United States is gonna have to take an active hand in relations with China. And he's really the only person that has the kind of strategic vision and overview over all of the agencies that will be able to be able to really know what the foundation of US-China relations should be aimed at, what we should be going for, what the overall goal should be. And I think, you know, trying to have someone else other than that will make things confusing for, for lower levels. But certainly the National Security Advisor plays an incredibly important role, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. And I think, um, you know, there's a work ongoing on this China policy for the Biden administration. And uh, hopefully we will have that kind of high level guidance coming out from the administration yep. soon. Certainly the creation of a new job at the National Security Council now filled by Kurt Campbell above senior director, but below national security advisor was to some degree a recognition of that need. Uh, let's get to some of the questions. First one is from Richard Erstad. 
who asked, how might civil society groups bolster China-U.S. cooperation on tackling climate change? What are best issues to focus on where a real contribution might result? We could do a full program on that, so limit uh, your answer to make a brief, whoever wants to take that. I'll take it since I worked on some of the climate change outcomes in the SNED. Um, although I have to stress that, you know, our report and our data mostly dealt with government to government. And while civil society was actively encouraged to participate um, in these mechanisms and in, in the projects that the government set up, it did require, I think, a, a government led directives, um, particularly on the part of China, where as many people who you know work on U.S.-China relations know, civil society is more constrained, um, particularly in in areas of international cooperation. But I think that there are a lot of different um, a different joint research uh, projects that civil society actors could contribute to. I think that there were there were several um, areas of people to people exchange that were useful in coming to common ground on climate change. Um, you know, one is that we had a sister lakes program and we had several sister cities programs that were working on things like clean energy efficiency projects in cities or conservation efforts. Um, we had, you know, cooperation between our national parks um, to talk about conservation efforts and between, you know, zoos to work on habitat preservation. So I think those are all areas in which civil society groups could, could lend a hand in um, advocating to the governments that there are significant areas of progress to be found on those issues. And then I would also say that inside international institutions, there's a lot of room for civil society actors to lend expertise, um, particularly technical expertise. So the US and China cooperate in the international system on climate change. Um, including through um, APEC and um, organizations that are regional in focus, um, particularly on deforestation and habitat preservation, um, but also in the UN and, and again, like with regard to major multinational agreements such as the Paris, uh, Paris Climate Accord. So those are all areas I think that civil society could help jumpstart cooperation. And it's really just about building the case that the benefit of working with China, the US working with China and China working with the US on some of these issues really outweighs the risks that you know some people would identify in terms of intellectual property rights or other areas of you know private sector competition. Um, so that is where I think civil society can be most effective and should concentrate its efforts. Great. Uh, Monica Hood at Amgen asked, one key aspect of the SNED was the appointment of a presidential envoy from China, which gave it high level cover. Given the current hyper-nationalistic dynamic in China, do you think China would be willing to engage at a high level while compartmentalizing these issues without bringing in the politics? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Well, I'll take a stab at it. I mean, I do think that um, the US-China relationship is extremely important to the Chinese leadership. I think that is uh, generally acknowledged inside the Chinese government. And so I think if uh, the US showed a willingness to engage in a broad spectrum 
you know, range of discussions like this, that the Chinese would be willing to appoint someone. I think the problem, and we see it having emerged again in the phone call last week between the two presidents, is that there's a sense that the relationship is in such bad shape that something will need to be done to sort of improve, you know, the overall relationship before we could launch into a kind of a, a concrete full spectrum discussion on various areas of uh, collaboration. But I think if we got there, the Chinese would certainly be willing to appoint a requisite official in order to make it a smooth process. That's a great answer. Um, let me, uh, I say, I'm, I'm sorry, we've got just a very few minutes left. And, and there's one question. If you had kind of just 60 seconds with President Biden based upon this um, you have to make an elevator pitch to him based upon this study. What would each of you tell him to do? Anybody want to do an elevator pitch? Come on, Dan. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Uh, and I haven't worked on my elevator pitch, so I guess this is good practice. But um, you know, I think that there's multiple takeaways as we as we covered earlier on, and I think one of the, the key aspects of this is the the bridging gaps between our systemics, our systemic differences here. And I think, you know, the, the call with Biden and Xi Jinping uh, earlier or last week, I should say, um, really pointed to that. I think he wanted to, to see if the leadership level discussions could um, do what the lower level engagements can do. But as we pointed out here, we need sort of both in order to address systemic differences, right? So we need a process that, that, that can handle both of those things. And I also think that, you know, we're going to have to have a process in which can successfully compartmentalize these issues. I, I think there is a little bit of an issue in terms of how much engagement the China is giving the U.S. in terms of climate change. Um, and I think that that's problematic in, in, in so many different ways. And so we need a mechanism that can start to sort of address the full suite of issues between the U.S. and China. So I don't, I don't know how I did there, but um, I didn't time myself, uh, but I'll give it another go if, if, we, if I get another chance. Anybody else, if this were a venture capital, if this was venture capital contest, this would be required, so. <laughs> Rory? Sure, I mean, I'll make some, some additional points. Um, maybe this elevator is going up a very tall building and we all get 30 or 60 seconds to add to this pitch, but um, I would say that you know, it is important to understand what the rest of the world expects from a U.S.-China relationship. And I think the rest of the world expects that the U.S. and China can have a mature and functional relationship. And the way to get to a mature and functional relationship is to have increased contacts among our working level officials. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, there's plenty of uh, very um, prominent voices in the U.S. foreign policy community and in the global foreign policy community that say that, you know, we cannot compromise anything um, that is important to us with regard to China. But I think that there is a, a definitely a quieter but majority of the rest of the countries that do not want to be forced to choose between the U.S. and China that do not want to see US-China competition split the world up into separate um, economic systems or spheres of influence, and that we have to be realistic that we live in this global ecosystem and we should do our best to, to serve it well. And that is how we re retain our global leadership 
not through um, trying to outcompete each other. Tiffany. I'll just add a bit by saying um, there is no progress without process. And we can't, as Rory was saying, expect to have a mature relationship without constant communication and building those relationships over time. Um, I would also say that having an SNED-like structure or having regular talks um, does not mean that there is no competition in other areas, um, but this helps to structure competition and helps to make progress on issues um, where there are common interests, where we don't actually want tensions in other area to impede progress in these areas. Susan, last but certainly not least. I thought they said it said it said it great. I think um, you know having communication between the United States and China is absolutely imperative for making progress on so many issues that are at the top of our both our respective agendas. You know, economic prosperity, overcoming the downturn following the pandemic, cooperation on the pandemic itself cooperation on climate change and other ecological problems, cooperation on countering extremism and terrorism. There's so many things that now are not in the state on state competition basket, but are in the, these are problems for both of us and we both can bring something to the table to try to help the world cope with them. And I think that as uh, Rory said, is what the world expects and it's, it's, it's very important. I mean, even between the US and close allies like the Europeans, like Japan and Korea, um, we have to do a lot of communicating and coordinating. So you can imagine that it, it, it's even more important with a country that, you know, we have with which we have a very different system and in many cases, you know, different views um, and different interests in some areas. And so the communication is, is I think, uh, more important, certainly for signaling intentions, for making sure that we understand what's happening and that we avoid conflict ultimately is of course the most important thing. But we can make progress on a lot of issues at the same time. This has been a wonderful panel. We allocated an hour and 15 minutes, which has turned out to be far too short but I think we've given the listeners a flavor for what is in the report, engagement revisited. And it really has to be read because the narrative that exists today in Washington is that engagement has failed and the SNEDs failed. One can reach that conclusion, but you gotta look at the data and see if it is supported by the data. I would argue if you go in with an open mind and you read this report, you begin to rethink whether engagement failed or not. You begin to rethink whether these dialogues have real deliverables for the American people. And I think what you have all done have laid out a clear case that should cause the Biden administration, help cause the Biden administration, to reevaluate these decisions on many of these dialogues. And what we saw the president do on Thursday night, I believe was the beginning of that process. But thank you all for a wonderful, interesting discussion. Um, the link to the report is in the chat. Um, it's also on the National Committee on American Foreign Policy website, if you wanna look at it there. I guess this takes you to the website, so that, that's easy to do. 
But thank you all so much, and thank you all for joining us this afternoon. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.